Well, everybody, welcome to this edition of Climate Transform, something which, as you are well aware, regular viewers are well aware, I tend to cherry pick the good interviews that I like to do. And when I have an old friend, Ewan Murray, who uh, generously offered up his time, even with his his mild cold that he has just shared with me, it's a real appreciation. Uh, from, I'm really appreciative of this, Ewan. And today we titled this Investing for Action, Not Words. It would be great for me to give a you an introduction to go through your career, but frankly, you're going to do it better than better than I am. So why don't you introduce yourself? You are the head of investments in the, in the international division at, at Federated Hermes. That's great for LinkedIn, but let's hear a little bit more about your, your story and how you got here. Paul, thank you. And yes, indeed, a mild allergy, but of course, I'm imagining in my head, it's a, it's a near-death experience, as only a, a male of our species would know. So... <laughs> Yeah, 31, 31 years and counting in investing. Started life as a, as a quant for my sins. So that was back in the days when they kept the pointy-headed people sat in the corner and lobbed their reports into the bin. I'm glad to say I think quantitative investing has come on leaps and bounds, much as we've seen responsible or sustainable investing come on leaps and bounds in the last several years, which uh, sort of brings us up to speed. As you said, I'm the CIO of uh, Federated Hermes International Business. And absolutely delighted to be here talking with you today. No, it's great. And uh, everyone, you and I have known each other, you probably worked this out, you and I have known each other for a while. So this is, this is certainly a pleasure for me. I've said to multiple people and clients and the like that I, I am in my career have never seen the sort of exponential, what I call mindshare grab that is happening with climate. I'm a China guy. I've lived through China through 04 and, and the like. But is it a COVID thing? Is it what? But the emphasis on climate and sustainable investing in general, we'll put it under the broad bucket of ESG, and we'll talk about the deficiencies of that in a second. But I've never seen the exponential growth rates in terms of, of interest and investment dollars and necessity that is going into climate. Talk a little bit about how you're seeing the transition from a world where climate was a theme to where climate is a necessity, an essential part of every investment decision. Let's start by saying uh, I, I don't think it was uh, you made a bad call at all by being the China guy, because actually, alongside climate and AI, I would put China as being one of the big trends that we will face over the next 20, 30 years. But yes, indeed, in the world of investing, the move to a more responsible investing approach, incorporating some consideration of climate change, is absolutely out there for all to see. I think it's gone beyond a fad or a simple trend. It's not going to be like the move to uh, 13030 is, is one of the moves I remember historically in, in investing that lasted for about two nanoseconds uh, before, it, before it went away. Why is that the case? Well, I, th I think there are a couple of things. I think, uh, and sad to say this, but if I look for one positive from the COVID pandemic, it's a sense that something that resulted from climate change, transmission of a zoonotic disease, became deeply personal for everyone. Everybody is affected around the globe and in equal measure. There's sort of no escaping from it. So I think to a large extent that has brought it front and centre, the problem of climate change, just existential crisis that we face alongside, I should say, biodiversity and ecosystem loss. It's absolutely uh, there for everyone to see. And of course, the cynical Scott that is me would also say, 
a number of people may have spotted a commercial opportunity. And if that's what takes them to get there, in a sense, I'm not that worried, to be honest, as strange as that might sound. Right. So actually, let's take that point a step further. And again, I don't like the phrase greenwashing, but you and I've got to be honest. The first thing I read this morning was about my beloved prime minister in Australia talking about announcing a a carbon neutrality target by 2050. And to say I was pissed off until in the first 30 seconds of reading that article is an understatement because it's, it's, it's the ultimate example of greenwashing when the two things he will not release any modelling on these assumptions, number one. Number two is that there is an allowance for future technologies as part of the path towards carbon neutrality, right? Which, again, I look, you and I live and breathe this every day. We are blessed in the roles that we have to talk to some of the smartest minds out there who will develop technologies that will make our world unrecognisable in the years to come. But for my beloved Prime Minister to turn around and say that is the equivalent of me saying to you, you I'm not going to go to the gym for the next 30 years because in 2050 there's going to be a pill that cures all my problems, right? And for me, with our climate transform product and the like, I see a lot of people who are serious about this, and I put you in that camp. And without naming names, I see a lot of people who are seeing the commercial opportunities, or more, or more to the point, see the commercial detriment if they don't be appearing to be doing the right thing. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the differences there? And really, let's focus on the hypocrisy of the traditional greenwashing, and again, without naming names, but obviously the finance industry, I would argue, is sort of a, sort of deeply ingrained in that. Yeah. I'm amazed it took you the full 30 seconds, Paul, uh, knowing you as I do. <laughs> I, I was going to give you 10 seconds at best to have reached uh, full pissed offness. So uh, that, that's remarkable in itself for your, for your audience to know. And yes, Australia is this very strange anachronism where actually the investing community is incredibly serious about climate change. If you, uh, anybody with a knowledge of super funds will know that so much good on the investment side and so many of the early adopters actually were the super funds in Australia. And it does strike me that the government there, indeed, as you point out, has been a huge laggard. Now, great to have a 2050 target on the horizon from Australia, but you can't help wonder if that is a little bit too late and too slow. And indeed, if, again, being cynical, is it simply an excuse for business as usual, especially when it's harnessed to some notion of new technologies are going to get us out of this problem? I very much subscribe to the Project Drawdown view of the world. For for those that know Project Drawdown, a wonderful organization that is committed to looking at some key actionable, measurable things that we can do to tackle climate change today. They rightly point out that we already have, with land and ocean, 41% of our emissions sequestered naturally. If we can merely scale up our regenerative activities and replenish some of what we've taken from the natural world, that is likely our best chance of uh, defeating climate change and reducing our emissions at the pace we need to achieve that one and a half degrees uh, above pre-industrial average temperatures. And it's essential that we do. If if, if your viewers ever wanted a horror story, uh, I I could recommend that they look up the difference between one and a half and two degree world. Not a pretty place to be. Now, of course, 
technology will form some part of the solution. Of that, I don't doubt. But for those that are relying purely on CCS technology to bail us out, uh, I have to question where the proof or the science behind that hope comes from. We've seen a number of, of investments in these technologies over the last 20 years. And to my, to, to, as far as I'm aware, I think there are still only about 20 out of 100 that have been successful, and they are all at infinitesimally small scale. So I'd really love for us to be focused on, first and foremost, the natural world. If we treat it properly, it will help us out. And then, yes, interestingly, let's have a look at other technologies. But please, let's not use it as an excuse to carry on business as usual. We, we can't afford it. Right. The ultimate tool that, that Federated Hermes have that every major investment firm has is their, is their dollars and cents, right? Going on to that point of, of, of technology, for example, I, I see the use of your capital base in one of two ways. One is to invest in those technologies. And I'm sure there's wonderful opportunities in, in you know, in, in everything from early stage venture to right through the private private equity. But secondly, also is to change behaviour. Can you talk? Take let's take both of those, and maybe we start with let's start with behaviour about how the allocation of capital from a major investment firm like Federated Hermes is attempting or is actually driving change in attitudes. So I think that's a really interesting one, Paul. And, and here I'm going to be honest and maybe surprise you slightly by saying that actually capital allocation in the secondary markets, I think, has very little effect whatsoever on achieving our climate change objectives. And here's why. Let's say we have an investment today in, in an oil and gas company. If we sell that position, we probably sell it to somebody less scrupulous than ourselves, and I'll come back to why that's important, but nothing changes in the real world. That, that company continues along their merry way, probably with very limited net zero goals and almost certainly lobbying against uh, climate change or contributing to lobbying against climate change. And that's the key here, is understanding that actually investment in the secondary market is these days is very little to do with real capital allocation. Far more important is the role that we can, we can play as engagers, either as shareholders or bondholders, working with corporates to hone their strategies to achieve climate change. And everybody has to play their part. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be a few businesses that we will quite rightly say, look, this particular activity, it's we're incapable of engaging and changing that activity. So we're simply going to have to divest. But I honestly don't think there will be too many of those. Now, you're absolutely right to point out that, of course, in the primary markets and indeed in uh, early stage growth, venture, private equity, there will be opportunities that we can allocate capital to. But in the grand scheme of things, I think it's safe to say they are probably small opportunities. Where I'd really love to see a huge difference in the capital market, Paul, is with this idea of sustainability-linked bonds. If every company that has issued a net zero pledge was to say, okay, I'll no longer issue plain debt, I'm only going to issue debt that is linked to that sustainable outcome, then overnight, we'd have a way in which the capital markets was really harnessing that drive towards net zero. I think that would be an incredibly powerful statement. And conveniently, we could hold the executives to account for achieving those outcomes 
as well as altering the rate of, of income that would be paid on those bonds. Right. But here's, but here's where the hypocrisy of, of this sort of thing comes into play, right? That So let's take a company like, let's take a company like BP, for example. Right. So BP, in terms of, of oil majors, and I think Total's probably on that list as well, have done a pretty darn good job off a very low base of transitioning to being from pure, pure fossil fuels to be more diversified energy and the like. Right. But, and again, not knowing if, you know, if, B, if BP was part of the list of CalPERS, CalSTRS, and Harvard of companies that they divested from, right, there has been a push to divest from quote unquote fossil fuel producing companies, right? But if BP, for example, was to go turn around and have a sustainability bond for their green hydrogen projects, biofuel projects, whatever they are, that is something that theoretically CalPERS and CalSTRS could go and invest in, right? So are we, the problem I have with this sort of, these sort of blanket mandates is so, so if you're, if you're a, a US pension fund, for example, you will not invest in BP but you'll invest in BP socially responsible bonds. Are we at the stage now where we're cherry picking across cross capital structures to work out what, what assets we should be investing in? Again, the, the answers are not clear, right? But it does sort of imply there's just a massive, you know, a level of complexity there, which is probably underappreciated. Yeah, no, there, and you're absolutely right. There is a huge level of complexity there. And maybe this is the as you rightly point out, where you have green bonds, which are classically very project specific, often don't get the degree of transparency and auditability that I as an investor would want to be comfortable that the proceeds that I've given, the capital that I've given to a particular company is going where I wanted it, which is really why rather than that, that project-based finance, my preference is for the outcome-based finance of sustainability performance-linked bonds where there is an independent third party will go in once a year and say, yeah, progress towards goal X is being made or is not being made. And the rate of interest on the coupon will change accordingly. That's a direct way of, of, of if you like, incentivizing or punishing, if you prefer, a company to, to behave in a particular way. So I think, from my mind, that is absolutely key to the transition. The other piece, which we should also talk about, is the role of banks, because the world of finance is not simply made up of asset managers. Banks play a huge role too. And it, it does worry me that a number of banks have made net zero pledges, have all signed up to Mark Carney's grand Glasgow net zero finance alliance, and yet can still find it uh, a reasonable thing to do to lend to uh, drilling projects in the Arctic. And when you dig into how they can possibly justify that, this will amuse you. What you'll find is that they've changed the definition of the Arctic these days. So, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> when beaten by climate finance, you simply change your geographic definitions, and then it's all fine, apparently. So, absolutely, this is complex. Uh, we need to think through these things very carefully, as you say. There are always going to be shades of grey. It is. It's. It's not simply black and white. What we notice with a number of the bigger oil companies is beginning to sell off assets either to private entities, which is probably not a good thing in the sense that they, they, they then fly underneath the radar of those activities, or in the Middle East, we see them selling those assets back to national governments. Again, where the degree of 
accountability and transparency drops significantly. So I think there is a case to be thought about, which is certainly for uh, mainstream assets, which will be required on the transition, acknowledging that it's not possible to simply switch overnight to renewables, we should stay invested and engage with these companies to make sure that the necessary change happens. Right. Again, the big contradiction, and hopefully there's going to be something, well, we hope there's a lot of things that are addressed at COP from next week onward, but the contradiction of the emerging with the emerging world. I look at this and I look at it, we, we fat obese Westerners with our, with our protein, with our protein diets and our, uh, and our, and our $70,000 Teslas, we are inconvenienced by climate change, right? The reason that India has been hesitant about getting on board with a lot of Paris Accord agreements and the like is simply because, you know, the attitude from many parts of the emerging world were, well, the West has, has gorged on our planet for the last, for the last 100 years. We, because of globalization and development and the like, we are, we are finally moving above poverty and the like. And yet you're telling us that we cannot have many of the fruits of the, and luxuries that the West takes, takes for granted. If there was to be one thing that came out of COP in regards to trying to solve that quandary, what would you like to see? (laughs) So it's it's the financing question, isn't it? And I think we know from the newswires this morning that that is probably, well, almost certainly it's going to be delayed to 2023. And here I'm talking about the $100 billion transfer from developed to developing nations to fund climate change meant to start last year, 2020, meant to run through to 2025. So we're starting with a disappointment. We we already know it's not going to start until 2023. Let's hope that what we can secure is a a longer term agreement. So 2025 beyond, which sees that finance continuing and be on a very stable footing. And it's not just continuing, it's got to grow rapidly. One of the problems with the Paris Agreement, particularly around finance and this particular commitment, of course, was nobody really specified who who had to contribute how much. And there are lots of different ways why one might tally that. And the finger usually gets pointed at the US for not having done enough. That may well be the case. But there are other more subtle problems underneath even those countries that have met their uh, intended contributions, where much of the funding has gone towards mitigation action. So that's action where there is a very measurable outcome. Carbon has been reduced. Oh, great. Wasn't our financing fantastic? And not enough has gone to adaptation. So let's be honest, for climate change, we are all in this together. Yes, it is true that the developing world uh, did not bear uh, or has not uh, enjoyed the same fruits of financial industrial revolution over the last hundred or so years. But unless there's some working together, some collaboration on how we can fund this going forward, it's the Southern Hemisphere, the developing world, that will probably bear the brunt of this. And it's fair to say, although you and I would here sit here and, and talk about the developing world today being principal emitters, it is also true to say it's still the rich that are the principal emitters when we look at it on a global basis, not the poor. Certainly on a per capita basis. Exactly. Exactly. Um, The ultimate contradiction in all of this, China is, has, I think, I think Xi Jinping's pledge in, uh, I think it was March March of last year, was a 
sort of huge kick in the pants to the, to the rest of the world. Korea, South Korea did something not far from that. Japan followed suit. But you have China, who is the world's biggest emitter, has a population that is the GDP per capita in different parts of the country of Zimbabwe, Argentina, and Qatar, right? So it is a contradiction of it has it still has mil- hundreds of millions of people in poverty. Um, it, cr- it is a contradiction of all contradictions. What is China's role in all of this? What do we need to see from China? And is China finally going to provide some global leadership in a, in a world where, frankly, it's not done that before? If that's to happen at Glasgow, it's going to be a, a bit of a surprise, to be honest, Paul. My understanding is that Xi Jinping is not intending to fly in, which is maybe an indication that we aren't going to see uh, a dramatic change in their position. And yes, I do actually think that China has within its gift to bring forward, uh, at least by 10 years, its net zero ambition. So 2060, back, pull it back to 2050, and still within reach. You would be closer to this than, than I would be. But my sense is that some of the recent energy shocks that have been experienced around the world have rather taken the, the Chinese government by surprise. And clearly that, that has sort of flipped their, their mindset to some extent, certainly in the near term future, back towards uh, fossil fuels. And that is disappointing. But let's look on the positive side. There's so many uh, ways in which China can benefit from the transition to uh, a more renewable energy uh, world, not the least of which is that their leadership roles in things like battery technology and battery production, solar panel production, all of which uh, they would stand to benefit hugely from. So I'm going to be an optimist on this one and, and say that I still think China has a huge role to play and actually can do a great amount on its own. Whether we see that in Glasgow or not, not entirely sure. Got it. When I look at this from a purely from an investment standpoint, I think of the climate transition and I bring one word comes to mind and that's friction, right? So again, without getting into a long-winded economic discussion, I don't believe money printing creates inflation. I think that supply chain disruptions create inflation. So was it all the money printing that we saw in the last couple of years that created the inflation we have now? Or was it tankers trying to do three-point turns in the Suez Canal and blocking it for, for weeks on weeks on end? There is no more friction coming to the global economy than the, than the energy transition. And the one thing I like to, to, the stat I like to quote is, general consensus is we'll sell 30 million EVs by a year by 2025, which will be you know, less than 50%. Let's, I think that number's light. I think it's over 50%. But in 2025, you're also going to have 1.5 billion combustion engines on global roads that need oil and gas, right? And this is, this is a debate about how do we tell India to give up all of its, all of its petrol, petrol motorbikes to go to electric motorbikes? Is it even feasible? And I think what we saw with Chinese gas uh, energy shortages, European gas price spikes and the like, is a precursor to what we will see in the years to come as this friction creates supply shortages in, in, those, in those fossil fuels, which remain essential, and a, a grid system that isn't capable currently of handling the transition properly. Can you talk about that notion of friction, the notion of, of inflation and the notion of disruption to the global economy? And how does that affect your thinking longer term in terms of where you're allocating capital? I think you're absolutely right to talk about friction. And let's start with the things that we know. In, in many parts of the world, the cost of, of renewables these days is at least 
almost the same as, if not slightly cheaper than, the cost of fossil fuel alternatives. But quite right to point out that the infrastructure that would allow us to take to make use of that is simply not there either. And obviously, we've seen these uh, shortages in Europe of wind. We've had a particularly light autumn, and that has not helped a situation in which natural gas supply has also been limited. And so we end up with these, as you rightly put it, these frictions. A couple of things could be done to get rid of those. The first would be to simply put everything on a level playing field. Everybody always seems to think that actually renewables are to a huge extent subsidized, whereas fossil fuels are not. And in fact, it's these days, it's rather the other way around. Even in a country like the UK that claims to have no subsidies, let's be honest, um, we enjoy VAT. Natural gas enjoys a lower VAT number than the headline rate, 5% as against 20. Now, that is in effect a subsidy. And until we cure issues like that around the globe and put all of the all of the potential sources of energy on, the, on a level playing field, well, the market isn't going to have a full effect. There are also things we can do from, and it's from the incentive side. So what is it going to take to encourage consumers, yourself, myself, the listeners, to make a move to alternative sources of energy, to renewables? And there are lots of things that can be done. And there is quite a bit of evidence coming out of schools like Stanford and Berkeley, where they're putting in place local programs, which provide the right incentives for people in a commercial way to start shifting how they interact with renewable energy. And it's that combination that's going to be required, I think, alongside policy and regulation from government. And we probably can't go by without mentioning the potential for carbon tax or carbon border adjustment mechanisms. All of those things together have got to be done to remove these frictions, as you, as you call them. And can you have policy measures like that without global cooperation? I don't think you can. And interestingly, we all know that Article 6 from the Paris Agreement is the one that's caused most difficulties in terms of actually putting it into practice. I think there are some reasonable hopes that actually in Glasgow, that might be one where at least it is, it is worked out to a passing degree. And that is all around carbon adjustment, carbon tax. So I think the potential for that is, is, is very strong. Got it. Can we talk a little bit about ESG and the notion of ESG, particularly in your, in your, in your world and your framework? Obviously, the acronym came about a very long time ago, right, when it was just easy to bucket this stuff together. Should we, as investors, be splitting the environmental side out of ESG? And without downplaying the importance of the social elements and the governance side of things, should we spin off ESG so the environmental side of its own with its own priorities and its own standards? In a word, no. This is a systemic issue that we're trying to tackle. So the notion of sort of splitting off a part of it seems uh, somewhat perverse to me. And, you know, it would be wrong of us not to think in terms of a just transition. We already know that we're going to have to reskill many, many workers around the world in order to meet new labour challenges. But again, I don't see it as being impossible. I'm very aware that academics at Stanford and, and other places have done a huge amount of work which shows how the transition can happen, the amount of finance, the amount of new jobs created. 
but also requiring a significant amount of investment in reskilling workforce. I also think we can't ignore the G either. In some sense, the G to me is, I know it stands for governance, but I think of it more as being G for guardrails. It's a sense for how I, as a shareholder, get a view as to whether a company is actually capable of making the change that it needs to or not, whether it has the structures in place that would allow it to be sort of even remotely serious about changing to a new world. So ESG, it's a label. It's much mocked in the in the press. We've had the recent whistleblowing about false promises and greenwashing. And I can find as much as I could find a period in which there's a positive relationship between returns and ESG factors equally, I can go find a period in which there's a negative relationship. So I think it's important to see all of these things together, but equally, it is just a label. When you're doing your ESG integration work, the key is to think about, well, what are the short handful of material issues that for any given company or activity actually make a difference? A question from Jonathan Team in the audience. Can you comment on on another source of carbon-free energy advanced power? It's funny, we were chatting with a friend this morning who's German and talking about how after Fukushima, there was a overwhelming consensus amongst left and right in German politics that nuclear had no place. Clearly, there is backpedaling on that across the board. Can you talk a little bit about broader adoption of nuclear? Yes, and great to hear from JT. And of course, he should be declaring that he does have a vested interest in this topic because his, uh, I happen to know that Valerie, his lovely wife, is involved in this area. So yeah, as you say, Paul, quite right. Nuclear, it's the one, it's the one non-fossil which a fuel option, which really seems to divide society. And never have you seen uh, greater opposite reactions than between the two European leaders, Germany and France. So in Germany, absolutely no to nuclear. France is very much the opposite mind and, and fully embracing it. Now that, I think, as far as I can tell, is more of a value or ethical reaction to the potential for accidents And I don't really have a strong economic view for that. I think it is an interesting area of technology to to explore. And will it be with us quickly enough to make the kind of differences that we need? Again, I simply don't know the answer to that. Hmm. But that goes and brings up a point, um, you know, and that it's what I call the climate paradox, which is effectively you've got to produce a lot of really toxic stuff. Right. So, and a nuclear reactor is a great example. So correct me if I'm wrong, I think between 5 and 10% of the operating cost of a nuclear reactor is, is uranium itself. So the price of uranium could go up two times, three times, and it really wouldn't affect things that greatly. But to build a nuclear reactor, I think something like 60% of the cost, depending on the, on the actual reactor itself, is cement. Right? And as we stand today, there are niche ways to make low-carbon low cement, and there are niche ways to make sort of low carbon aluminum, which we need a lot of to rebuild our electricity grids across the globe. Talk a little bit about what I call this one step back to take two or three steps forward approach where we've got to produce a lot of really nasty stuff to build the infrastructure required to push us towards a decarbonized world. And I think that's exactly right, Paul. There there are hard decisions and compromises that, that, that will get made. 
The good news is there is progress being made on, on, on some, if not all of these fronts for what I would call these harder to abate, harder to abate sectors. And cement is the classic, a very small building project at home that we were looking at uh, last year. I tried for love and money to find uh, some sort of eco cement alternative and simply impossible to get it as a, as a retail consumer here in the UK. But I know that there are academics, the Grantham Institute in London, who have actually come up with uh, with a potential solution, not yet at scale. Though. And, and here's the key thing, going back to my sort of project drawdown comments, how do we invest in the right things? We know that cement, steel, and airlines are three hard to abate sectors. How do we invest in the right things and scale them rapidly enough to make the differences that we will require in a relatively short space of time. Uh, there's some really interesting work going on with steel as well. Very much aware of a, of a large Swedish company that I won't name, uh, which is doing a huge amount of work in terms of green steel and actually offering, and, and this fills my heart with joy, they're offering to share some of that technology with other companies around the world in hope that it can be scaled quickly enough for it to become a, a real, properly usable. Fascinating. So just on, on that point, though, obviously we look at the, cl- the climate sector, however one wants to define that, investing in climate tech. You know, it's safe to say these companies aren't cheap, right, that there has been a wave of money that's gone into, and solar is a fabulous example of this, right? But be it, Tesla, Tesla hits a trillion dollars value, in values today. So the first clean, first clean tech company, you could argue, with a trillion dollars of market cap today. Obviously, when you have elevated valuations, the expected long-term return on those assets should be theoretically is, is relatively low. So let's talk talk a little bit about the valuation of climate assets in the aggregate. A, is it realistic to think the textbooks are going to be right, that we should expect subpar returns because of excessive valuations in the climate space in the aggregate? And, and secondly, has ESG distorted valuations? I think probably to some extent ESG has distorted valuations. And I, th- I think our, the, the best that we can do is to sort of loop back to the example of, of the railroad, railroads last century and, and what happened there. Of course, to achieve the changes that we made, we're going to need more than simply ESG leaders. We actually need all companies or as, as many as possible to change the way in which they behave and actually, I think this is one of the reasons why we as an investment house, we will invest impactfully with impact companies, but we're also very happy to invest in ESG transformers where we think we can engage in a meaningful way to get the kind of change that we need. So actually, you know, changing the whole shape of the economy, not just pushing up the valuations of a small select group. And you're absolutely right to mention a firm like Tesla, clearly a world leader in, in EVs and has changed the way in which we think about cars, and indeed may go on further than that to think to change the way in which we think about driving. But of course, at the crux of it, if you do your life cycle analysis, there's a huge difference between driving your Tesla in Poland, let's say, versus driving your Tesla in Scotland. Why? Because it matters what the source of the electricity is. It's the key variable which makes an EV a green uh, car or not. 
I will share. I will. I will share a video with you and actually everyone, which is a very funny video I got sent this morning by my son, which shows a uh, a, a gentleman whose uh, Tesla has run out of power, but he's okay. He has a petrol. He has a petrol generator in his car, which he uses to charge his Tesla. So uh, I, think, I think we're on the same page there. Do you have thoughts on the FSA flashing out requirements of what ESG slash sustainability will mean, and is it too soon to be defining these things so narrowly? So I think, well, this isn't, of course, just not just the, the, the FCA. It's the, well, the UK government and their SDR recently, which is intended to mirror the EU's SFDR program. And it's an incredibly thorny issue, all of which, of course, links back to uh, a taxonomy. How do we define whether different activities are sustainable or not? And we've seen the EU run into these problems where... Uh, vested interests get in the way of sensible economic outcomes. And we saw that with, with, with bio and the Scandinavian countries. We see it with natural gas, which has been kicked down the road because it's too difficult to answer a question, uh, to answer as a question, is it part of this, the transition or not? All of this simply means that it is helpful to try and define and label and improve the disclosure of activity, but it's not an easy thing to do. And what I suppose I really worry about is uh, that everybody waits for a perfect answer before acting. And actually, we need acting today. We need action. So are we in a situation where the, where the, the perfect is getting in the way of the good and serviceable? I do think that might be the, the danger. Right. And just to take that a step further, the politi- political impasses that we have, we've witnessed. Obviously, I was complaining before about about Australia and their and their their so called twenty fifty net zero target. But obviously, we're seeing this in regards to Joe, Joe, a Democrat Joe Manchin from the state of West Virginia, who effectively is in the process of upending climate climate legislation in the United in, in the United States because he comes from a coal a coal mining and natural gas natural gas state. I was going to have this as my concluding question, but I want to throw it out now. Can sustainable change really occur if we're going to live in a world of of political dysfunction and sort of nationalistic rhetoric? Can we have true change without really functional support from government? Well, I think that's a it's a great question, and, and my short answer would be would be no. I don't I don't think we we can. It certainly makes uh, life incredibly more difficult, and clearly jo- Joe Manchin ha- has effectively scuppered the Biden administration's central or the central plank of their of their climate activity. I have no no doubt whatsoever that the Biden administration is working on plans B, C, and D, uh, and I simply don't know what shape that they will they will look like. In the States, I'm, I'm sort of very encouraged by noises that are coming out of the SEC and the Department of Labor. It does seem that a broader interpretation of fiduciary law might be forthcoming. I think that would be very valuable. It makes sense to me, at least, that thinking about items like climate change and biodiversity and ecosystem loss, it is entirely reasonable to consider those as systemic risks which should form part of fiduciary duty consideration. So it would help to have the right political uh, atmosphere in which to work, but it's, I, I would suggest that we can still make significant progress without it, but we, it's just going to take us longer and it'll be a harder slog. 
Got it. We have a sort of another pillar of, of quote unquote, of policy, which is which is central banks around the world. Clearly, Madame Lagarde and the ECB have been sort of front and center in terms of prioritizing climate, effectively in the same in the same at the same level as inflation. And I've I've made the argument or had the debate, Ewan, with with clients recently, where I argue that if we are going to see elevated levels of inflation because of underinvestment in oil and gas and again, replicating what we saw with European gas prices, if that is going to create inflationary pressures for the ECB, for example, to raise rates on the back of higher energy prices, well, it's sort of shooting themselves in their foot versus their other, their other agenda. And I've been, I've been asking a lot of people this question, and I will warn you, there is no answer. But <laughs> can and should central banks globally look through climate-induced inflation and focus really on other factors to make sure that the funding of the climate agenda continues to go in a very smooth manner? I think central banks are almost obliged to do that, to ensure that, that funding goes through in a smooth manner. The alternative being that we end up having done too little with a huge amount of disruption required in a very short space of time, a decade or so down the, down the pike. We know that we need to reduce emissions by 50% by 2030 to be on a one and a half degree path, surely that is something which is very much focusing central banks' minds. I'd love to see the central bankers taking it uh, maybe a step further and actually requiring banks to, to maintain higher risk capital balances on particular loans. I think that's something that has not been sufficiently explored yet and would be another way for central banks to you know, have a meaningful intervention in this area, in a way that markets simply have not been able to uh, to tackle. So, when you look at your own your own business, and again, back at the back of the good old days, you had you had commodity analysts, and you had auto analysts, and you had utilities analysts, and the like. When you look at when you look at the structure of the way you do analysis and the way you allocate capital, is there a path towards bucketing all these things in together and having them as the as as a as as purely climate, I mean, should climate be treated as its own asset class? Put it this way: if, if people can make the argument, and I certainly do not that the cryptocurrency is its own asset class, or and you've heard this before, hedge funds are an asset class. Well, if that if you can use that loose definition, can't climate be its own its own asset class? And how do you think about the way you structure your business longer term around the climate agenda? There are lots of different ways to skin that particular cat ball. But what we've chosen to do is to say, if we're going to be serious about integrating climate change considerations into everything we do, it's got to be mainstream. So we don't have a separate band of ESG analysts that just look at that work. We actually ensure that the, all of our analysts and portfolio managers are uh, in, you know, in, incorporating consideration of ESG issues into their investment analysis. And then we go and do a, a very long piece of work twice a year, which is to grade them on that effort. And essentially, we're looking for progress in how they develop their integration. Now, we, at the same time, we do have a separate team of engagers and for the very simple reason that actually we found that engagement is a subtly different skill to investing. Many of our engagers come from academic or industry backgrounds or indeed consulting backgrounds. And the way in which they think and operate is subtly different to uh, the way in which our investment teams work. 
but put them together in a room in the same meeting, the same engagement meeting, and you get a very, very powerful outcome, both coming from slightly different angles. So there will be some teams that are some businesses that have gone down having separate ESG analysts. Personally, I think the right way is to integrate it as far as you can into the mainstream approach. And the engagers, I think you refer to them, and the engagers, are they less commercially oriented? And I don't, that sounds bad, but I don't want it to be. Are they less, are, are they more focused on, on less sort of classic investment style metrics in terms of their, their inputs? When you said they view it differently, how do they view it differently? So yes, absolutely right. They are very much focused on, you know, whatever, yeah, climate change, biodiversity, ecosystem loss, the big issues of today, and focused on what I would call non-traditional financial metrics over considerably long periods of time. We know from our data that most engagement requires a minimum of three years hard work with a number of milestone objectives along the way. And so actually it naturally predisposes to quite a long investment horizon, five, seven plus years, and that won't be suitable for all investment processes. Many of them will, will be too short to allow any meaningful engagement to take place. And just to take that a step further, does that imply that those the real benefit of those sorts of investments and those sort of engagements is more private equity in the venture capital realm than, than public markets? I'd argue it's also available in the public markets, but it really depends on how you think about public markets and your time horizon. So this is one of the one of the points of contention that I have with with Tariq Fancy is, and the, the journalist from the FT who's, who's very much behind him, that they would say that, well, ESG factors are not aligned to current market horizons. And I think to some extent that is true, but equally I would argue that horizon of most ESG issues at which it will play out is very aligned to the end investor horizon, i.e., people's pension funds and savers. In fact, it's markets, very short term, that are in fact uh, the odd one out. But of course, that also ignores the fact that uh, there are issues associated with climate change. Let's call them the unnatural natural disasters, flooding in China, Germany, fires in, uh, in the western U- northwestern US and Canada. Those things are playing out today. So actually, they're, they're, they're very real and it's, it's those exact things, which I think as we started this conversation, that's what's making people feel that climate change is a lot more personal than it was before. Mate, let's get you out of here on, on the following question. And this is a sort of, again, I, I, you can only obviously look at this through the lens of, 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 of Federated Hermes, but is the finance industry and asset management, is it, is it being a leader in the transition of investment, of, of using investment capital for good, is it is it leading or is it being led by by end client requirements and demands? So I think you investment firms have to be led by end client demands, and the reason I say that is because end clients will have uh, quite rightly different definitions of what sustainable investing means to them. Some will be very much driven by financial performance considerations, in which case one is probably going to want to think about ESG issues as being either uh, contributing to risk or potentially adding alpha, and that would, be, that would be perfectly legitimate. Alternatively, they may request you to have a look at ESG issues from a values alignment perspective so that you are potentially excluding certain sectors or only looking at particular sectors which are perceived to be leaders, or they're thinking about things from an impact perspective. 
So I think unless you can work out which of those camps, and it's, again, shades of grey, which of those camps is your underlying investor's key motivation for, for investing sustainably, it's really very difficult to make the change. And I think that's right. I think at the end of the day, individuals, whether as taxpayers or voters or as savers and pensioners, individuals have a huge amount of power at their disposal, which they can use for good. And hopefully, my friend, they can convince governments to get on board with all of this. And, uh, you know, Let's and, mate, th- this was a fantastic conversation, mate. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Very welcome. Thanks, Paul. Thanks.